going to be back in the book of Ephesians this morning, if you want to turn there, the fourth chapter. You know, when we began the, looking at this chapter, um, the first verse, Paul says we are to live lives worthy or consistent with our calling as being followers of Christ, which then he goes on to define as a life united with God and his people, a life involved in ministry to others, and one that is seeking holiness. And then as we come to verse 25, he goes further in describing behavior that's consistent with that calling that we have. As he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, Generally, in passages like this, we might look at the various actions mentioned, like lying and stealing and language and anger, But these behaviors are a reflection of values upon which they're based. Values which run much deeper than simple do's and don'ts. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Where do you get your values from? You know, there can be a tremendous contradiction in our society between what we say we value and what we want for ourselves. There was a recent study by Robert Wuthno at Princeton University which found that while 89% of U.S. workers agree that society is too materialistic, 84% wish they had more money. 71% believe that being greedy is a sin, but 76% said having more money would give them a better feeling about themselves. 69% said they admire those who take lower-paying jobs in order to help others, and 52% want to reduce their work hours, yet 68% would be willing to work longer hours if it meant they got more money. 71% said society would be improved if people placed less emphasis on money, but 80% admire those who make a lot of money by working hard. We say we value human life, but do you realize there are three times as many animal shelters in our country as there are shelters for abused women? We're alarmed by the rising violence we see, and yet by the time the average child graduates from high school, they will have watched over 13,000 violent deaths on TV. We're concerned about people in need, but over 50 million Americans go to bed hungry every night. And they say up to 40% of food produced in the United States is thrown away every year. And we spend over a billion dollars just to get rid of it. At retail price, that's over $160 billion a year being thrown away. 
It's estimated that it would take $30 billion a year to end world hunger. But that's less than one week's worth of dispense spending in the United States. Just this week, I read that the average adult spends 11 hours a day on digital media, television, internet, social media. If that's where we're spending our time, it raises the question, where are our values coming from? What and who is really shaping them? To quote Jeffrey Harewood, the great tragedy and problem of this age is that we are standing at the crossroads and all the signposts have fallen down. Rather than taking our cue from a fallen world, imitating our friends and celebrities, Paul gives us an alternative, a better way, as he continues in Ephesians by saying, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible." This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The key idea Paul is giving here is, you're God's child, so imitate him, not the world. Base your life on him and his world, not those around you. He wants to be the source, not society, for our standards. And he's spoken through his word and most clearly through his son, not just to tell us what to believe or what to do, but to show us how to live. It doesn't really matter what you say you believe. How you live reflects what really is believed. Be imitators of God, he says. Copy him. It means look to his example. Just as a child learns from watching their parents, so we too are to learn by watching our heavenly father. To be imitators learns we, means we learn what is consistent with who he is. The call to follow Christ is a call to be like him. For those God foreknew, Paul said in Romans 8, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
John said, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Copy him, imitate him, Paul says. Now we can get preoccupied with specific actions, what we do or don't do, but Jesus' concern isn't limited just to your actions, but your life itself, helping you to become the type of person that God created you to be. And that comes through imitation. You know, have you seen those bumper stickers that do random acts of kindness? It sounds so good. If everyone would do a good deed, the world will be a better place. But you're not called by God to do random deeds of kindness. You're called to be that kind of person who does kind deeds. You tell the truth because you are honest, not just to do something. If it's a deed, you can turn it on and off, but if it's a way of life, it's something that is who you are. Paul doesn't leave us on our own here to wonder what that means after saying imitate God. Three times in this passage, he uses a Greek word, peripateo, which says what he's trying to get at. It's a word which means to live or to walk. A term referring not just to an action, but to a way of life. When he says we are to live or walk in this manner, he's saying this is to be a description of your lifestyle. So in verses 2 through 7, he says, imitate God by living, by walking, by having as a part of your life love. We need to understand what love means. There are so many different understandings and ideas. Most of them coming from the world are distorted. In ancient Ephesus, to whom Paul wrote, it had this massive temple of Artemis where love was for sale. Something you could go out and buy from one over, over a thousand temple prostitutes in the temple of Artemis. And it made it something degrading, dehumanizing. People became objects, something there for our gratification and pleasure to be used and discarded. And with a massive sex industry promoted by the powers in that city, there was very little reason people had to deny themselves any pleasure. But is that any different from the world around us? You open a magazine or newspaper and you find love is for sale. Why else would they put a beautiful model in a bikini sitting next to a car? What are they selling? Our fashion industry is built upon the notion that sex sells. Love is for sale. You turn on the TV or listen to popular songs and love is an uncontrollable urge. As people hop from one bed to another, following their inner drive, And our entertainment industry thrives on the notion that love and sex go together and we are created to follow our urges. You read popular novels and you see love is a feeling, something you fall into and out of, so when your feelings are gone, you look elsewhere. Cosmetics and health industries, you see love is an image to maintain, a certain look and shape, and we spend billions each year to cover up our age spots or flaws in our skin. Where are you turning to for your understanding of love? Paul said, be imitators of God by living a life of love, by being a people of love. And then he elaborates by saying, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or of impurity or greed because these are improper. These are inconsistent 
with living a life worthy of your calling because they dehumanize. Goes on to say, don't let there be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place. They're not fitting. Do you stop and think about what impact your words have on others? What message you're given by off-color jokes or language? We think words don't matter, but they dehumanize also. Scripture says we're created in the image of God, and isn't it any wonder that Paul says, because of this view of love, God's wrath is coming, when it dehumanizes, and when it destroys that image. It may seem harsh to talk about God's wrath at this point, but that's how God feels when you are degrading what he creates. You make it so it no longer bears a resemblance to him. Paul said, instead, be imitators of God by living a life of love. And to eliminate any confusion of what that really looks like, he said, live a life of love just as Christ loved us. He becomes our example. His model of self-giving and sacrifice, of caring for others, period. Not for the way they make us feel or what they can do for us. It's how Paul described love in Corinthians, another city with a very warped understanding, where he said love is patient and kind and not envious and not boastful or arrogant or rude. He's describing how, how it's to look by living a life of love according to those characteristics. Paul, the Apostle John said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Paul told the Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we are still living as enemies or in rebellion with God, Christ gave himself. He died for us. In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey wrote, Love is most pervasive and persuasive when it involves sacrifice, and the Gospels make it very clear that Jesus came to die. That's the imitation that we are to take, the idea of giving of ourselves. Want to know how to imitate God's love? Through giving, through service, through sacrifice. We are told to imitate God in Christ, not the junk we see in the world around us. John said also, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children by living a life of love. And then in verse 8 through 14, he says, To imitate God is also to live or to walk as children of the light. God is love, Scripture says, but it also says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Again, it's not referring to some specific actions. It's referring to a way of living. Life in Ephesus was dominated by the massive temple of lust and greed because it was also the main bank for the region. It was one of, a city of darkness. The people were ignorant of the ways of God. They didn't know any dif difference between good and evil, morally or intellectually. And when we're ignorant of God, there's no constraint on evil, no reason to deny ourselves pleasure. They were a people of darkness. In chapter 4, Paul has said, So I tell you this and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of thinking, for they are darkened in their understanding. 
because of the ignorance of the, that is in them. It describes the world, ignorant of God's ways. You know, a few years ago, both the New York Times and MTV, of all stations, ran a special dealing with the subject of sin and showed how hard a time we have as a society even understanding what it is. One MTV commentator said, a little lust, pride, sloth, and gluttony in moderation are fun, and that's what keeps your heart beating. And it's something of a spoof in the November 1987 edition of Harper's Magazine. They ran a series of full-page ads promoting each one of the seven deadly sins. And they came up with such things as pride, the sin you can feel good about. B, all that you can be, the glutton society, helping people make the most of themselves for over a hundred years. Another read, any sin that's enabled us to survive centuries of war, death, pestilence, and famine can't be called deadly. And then underneath is a picture of a man and a woman in a passionate embrace with the caption, lust, where would we be without it? And still another has a picture of Santa Claus in a business suit with the words, the world's foremost authority speaking on the subject of greed. He defends it by saying, greed has always motivated men and women to make better mousetraps, to create greater art, and to find cure for diseases and pathways to the moon. There's confusion in a dark world, and yet Christ comes to shine the light, to offer hope and change. And the only time, unfortunately, people are often presented as happy and fulfilled in our society and commercials is by purchasing, collecting, consuming products that resolve our problems, deliver self-assurance, and win friends. So merit is a cigarette. Joy and happiness are perfumes. Caring and hope are cosmetics. Spirit is a car. Salvation is a brand of jeans. Fidelity and commitment are what we give to our washers and dryers and cars and stereos. And an ad for furniture in the New York Times read, if your husband doesn't like it, leave him. <laughs> Paul said, you were once darkness. That used to describe you. But now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. Be imitators of God. Light dispels darkness. They cannot coexist. And so Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your light shine. The emphasis of living as children of the light is living in such a way that we dispel the darkness around us. Imitating God means living a life of love, living as light. And then he concludes it in verses 15 through 20 by saying, imitating God is also living in wisdom. By nature, wisdom is practical. This is kind of a summary. It's not what you know, it's how you live. It deals with the day-to-day -day stuff, how you behave, do your work, relate to your friends. You know, many of us know what the Bible says about things. We know what God has said is right or wrong, but are we following it? That's wisdom. Or are we, as he says in verse 17, being foolish? Do not get drunk with wine, he said, which leads to debauchery or recklessness or ruin. The New Living Translation says it will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What is defining your values? The way you're living, 
your standards, your decisions? Is it God or is it the world? Who are you imitating? What direction is your life heading in how you treat others? This is a perfect time of year where we do that. New Year's. We are encouraged to take stock of our life, the direction they're heading, the values you have, to see if it needs some tweaking, some adjustments. Maybe you need to make that most important adjustment of all and simply open your heart to a loving God. To know him, to know the life, the salvation that he offers. And it's the opportunity we give each week as we close with the hymn of commitment. It's an invitation to make a change, to allow God to make a change in your life. And so it's an invitation when we stand and sing in a moment. If it's time for you as the new year begins to start off on a new leaf, with the new Lord. We invite you to pray here at the front with you. If it's to make a commitment to follow in that commitment you've already made to him, whether it's to be baptized or unite with this church as we serve together, or some other commitment, we invite you to come to pray together here at the front in a moment as we stand and sing. But before the worship team comes, will you please bow for a word of prayer? Our Father, as we prepare to close together, we thank you that we can imitate the one who gave his life to show us the way, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. We thank you, Father, that he has showed us, demonstrated your love in so many ways. Lord, may we become imitators of you and not those around us to live out this new year within a greater awareness of your presence and your power in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.